Hey, Corey, I've got a number for you, and it's a tricky one. All right. So you're going to have to help me out. Give me a range. Is it between one and a hundred? Um, not really. That doesn't help. All right. Well, it's uh, CBDRB-FY21-0002-0471-0001. Dash six six five zero. Is that your Wi-Fi router password? <laughs> I know. Well, this one was not fair. It's an authorization number. It turns out some of the data that the Census Bureau collects requires authorization to use and research board approval from their disclosure board. Sounds involved, but some pretty interesting answers can come from it. Luckily, we're joined today by an academic researcher who's gone through the administration to get the data and then dug into it and applied his expertise to learn some interesting things that are relevant to practitioners. For example, what's going on with millennials and what is going on with demand for housing in downtown areas. All right. So these are topics we talk about all the time, but getting hard facts to inform those topics is a challenge. Uh, so it sounds like we got a lot of great stuff today. Yep. Should be fun. Hello and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And today we are fortunate to welcome Hyo Jung Lee. He is an assistant professor at Virginia Tech with interests in housing demographics and urban economics. Prior to that, he was at the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard and received his PhD in urban planning and development at USC. Today, we'll learn about millennials' housing patterns compared to previous generations and what we can expect in the future. Welcome to the show, Hyo Jung. Right. Thanks for having me. So excited to be here today. Right. So, so yeah, so I kind of, in the intro, we mentioned uh, kind of a cryptic uh, number, um, but it was, uh, it was an authorization to use, uh, use data. But before we get too deep into that, you've taken a look at millennials housing patterns, you've compared it to previous generations, and you've, you know, thought about, you know, demand for downtown housing and things like that. Some key inputs into that are um, a couple of theories that you bring up called peak millennial and youthification. Can you give us a little bit of background on, on all these things? Sure. So both theories and hypotheses are you know, closely related to the key topics that I'm going to talk about, which is age and birth goal. So the basic message that I wanted to tell through the paper was, you know, yes, millennials are leaving the cities, but no, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, young adults are leaving those areas. So it sounds a little bit weird, but it makes sense because age and birth cohort or, or generation are totally different concepts. So, you know, we can think about this in, in this way. So cohort is basically a group of people who experience the same event within the same time interval. So birth cohort is one of those specific type of such core groups, given the fact that they were born in the same year or in the same period. Um, in, the, in the class of 2024, and say, you know, MBAs in like 2020 draft class are other examples of those cohort groups. And being a freshman, like sophomore, junior, senior, or like playing as a you know, rookie to like being an FA and then retiring are somewhat, you know, similar to the age concept. Um, but when it, it is so obvious that, you know, there was a time when Ron was a rookie player and now he's one of the most, you know, oldest players in the league, there are some people who are still getting you know, confused about age and cohort and simply thinking that you know, millennials are like forever young. 
No, they are not. They are not Peter Pan's. And now the oldest millennials are about 40 years old, which is me. And with that said, um, when we think about what's happening in urban areas, there are two ways to explain that. So the peak millennials, um, the peak millennial hypothesis is what my academic advisor, like Dahlmeier, said we are see, you know, suggested in his you know, famous housing policy debate paper. And the, the idea is that, you know, urban concentration of those millennials was already like peaked in 2015. Uh, when, when the largest millennial birth cohort um, was born in, say, 1990, um, turned the age of 25. And then the more and more millennials have started to move from you know, urban centers to suburbs as they age into, say, their 30s and 40s. Um, the unification hypothesis, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, focuses on young adult age groups. It is about just age. And that term was actually coined by you know, Marcus Moose at the University of Waterloo, um, describing an increased number of and the share of um, young adults in, say, you know, high density, downtown areas, and inner city areas. So it basically talks about you know, how people are spending more time in their kind of youthful life cycle stage and you know, delay their transition into adulthood, and that results in you know, the, the you know, increased you know, presence of those young adults in downtown areas. So these are the two key different kind of ideas explaining what's happening now. So in my paper, I just try to um, confirm both of the stories and try to show that both of the seemingly kind of contradictory um, theories can be actually compatible. All right. So now, uh, now that we understand peak millennial and youthification and how they relate a little bit, so what is happening now? Right. Um, there was the exact same question that I had. So there was a reason why I, I tried to get this kind of confidential, like secret version of the American Community Survey that basically, you know, enabled me to analyze these kind of trends at very, very kind of detailed kind of geographic level at you know, social track or even block level, and you know. So that basically shows that um, the two the seemingly those contradictory theories can be actually happening at the same time. Um, so among those, you know, early millennials, you know, born from 1981 to 1990, you know, the share of those people who are in urban neighborhoods had actually increased from, say, you know, 2006 to 2015, 2016. And then the, that urban share fell, you know, since 2015-16. So the more and more um, millennials are moving from urban areas to suburban areas. But however, the share of young adults, say 25 to 34, um, in, in urban centers, modestly increased over time. Um, why? Because those late millennials who were born in 1991 to um, 2000, and, and those, you know, post moved into of the downtown areas since the mid-2010s. So the migration of um, millennials into suburbs was already uh, have started before the COVID-19. And it is totally natural to see that kind of thing as they are moving from one life state cycle to another. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's interesting and really important because often I think when people are thinking about this from a little bit of a distance, the, uh, Millennials got spoken about so long and, and uh, how big the millennial generation was and its preferences for, for downtown areas. And, um, you know, were downtowns fully dependent on that? 
Um, but when you layer that together with the youthification, but there's still enough people coming in from behind them, um, young folks that are, that are continuing to go into these types of areas. As you look at development and, um, and where people go, do they still want some of the same things as what they wanted in the past? Yes. Um, so after this paper, you know, I've been analyzing where millennials are moving in terms of you know, metros and then you know, within metros, those neighborhoods, um, by following those Gen Xers and early millennials or, or Gen years <laughs> for, from, say, between 1975 to 1984. Um, so they were, say, you know, 25 to 34 years old in 2009 and 35, years, 35 to 44 years old in 2019. So when I calculate the population growth rates um, that those senior generation um, among the top 100 metros um, and, and rank the top gainers and losers, um, there are some several interesting patterns that showed up. Um, some are consistent with what we've seen before, some are not. So among those top gainers, um, the, some obvious you know, destinations stand out as expected, like those metros in Florida, like Orlando, Miami, Tampa, um, and Cape Coral, and some you know, Texan cities like San Antonio and Houston. And yes, Washington, D.C. was one of those top gainers as well. And then you might find some you know, smaller and affordable cities with strong high-tech industries like, like Charlotte, you know, Colorado Springs, Denver, Provo, and then some surprising names like you know, Hudson Valley and in, in Connecticut, like um, you know, Bridgeport, like Poughkeepsie um, and Allentown, those things are showing up. So that, that is the first time that I think that Poughkeepsie's ever been mentioned on the podcast. Uh, and may, maybe, uh, maybe Bridgeport too, actually. So what, when you see uh, people moving to those places that we don't hear as much on, on, uh, on the podcast, what are they looking for and what are they finding? Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised to see those names as well. I mean, they are basically um, kind of, you know, satellite cities of New York, but they form their own metropolitan area so that they, they showed up in this kind of list of metropolitan area. And when I did some additional analysis, it turned out that um, there are many young movers um, from New York. So many of those new movers in those in the Poughkeepsie, Bridgeport, and then Allentown were actually from like Manhattan or, or Bronx and Queens and Brookings. And even after move, when I checked with they, where they work and then how much spend, how much time they spend for commuting, it turned out that they are in those areas like Bridgeport, Poughkeepsie, but still working in New York, like commuting to New York, um, spending an hour or two, more than two hours, maybe on train or bus, in a car. I don't know. So that was surprising to see. That is surprising. And I think that, uh, it, and, you know, as we've looked at some data on uh, cost of living and things like that and, uh, and affordability, certainly a place like Bridgeport, I think it offers a little bit different amenities, but the cost of living can still be um, fairly high there. So, uh, so I think it's, it's um, a mix of things. And, uh, and certainly I think that um, a lot of these metros and, and smaller areas where, where people are going, some of that might be driven uh, by pandemic-related uh, um, uh, moves where, where people are moving to less dense areas. Um, but I think, you know, the, we, we were talking so much before the pandemic about walkability and, uh, and the different offerings and, and proximity to jobs. 
Um, when as people move and and people are affected by the pandemic and by you know aging and, and all of those kind of things, um, where do you see uh, preferences for for that kind of thing? And how do you see you know neighborhoods, uh, whether suburban or urban, kind of changing? Right. So when I checked it, um, not only at the you know, metro level but also at the like neighborhood level. What I could see was those neighborhoods with like mass transit and having relatively affordable housing prices showed up um, in terms of you know where those millennials are heading to. So for example, in the Washington DC, it'll be somewhere around you know Orange Line and the Silver Line, like Ashburn, and then you know Manassas and then Gainesville, they kind of areas of you know attractive lots of those um millennials and in Maryland area as well, along the line of the red line, you know, there has been lots of the gains of millennials. It seems like they are thinking about those, you know, both housing costs and transit costs. And then they think those areas with um, lots of the mass transit options and then related high density development and mixed use on um, mixed um, income, that kind of area. That's interesting. And as you talk about the, the, um, kind of the in-metro dynamics that you just kind of went through in some of the D.C. area. You know, one of the pieces of the paper that I really appreciated as you were looking at kind of the dynamics of, of um, you know, the, the millennials and the youthifications of downtowns was, you know, it matters how you measure, how you define what a downtown or central city is. Um, and, uh, and you wanted to verify that you had results that were kind of robust across measures. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, how you looked at those and what are the options for that? Sure. Um, so when I did this and then, you know, previous paper, um, the, the, the one of the most crucial kind of decisions that I can make was to define and pick up those urban uh, or central kind of urban cores, the neighborhoods, and then suburban neighborhoods. And many of the critics on my paper actually talked about, have you tried this? Have you tried that? So because it's, it's really difficult to define what is urban, what is suburban, um, just like other you know, urban phenomena like gentrification and like say urban sprawl, there's no kind of single definition of what urban core means. And everyone have different idea about what the urban spaces in downtown areas are. So the idea that I had was that, okay, let's try everything and see how different definitions give me different results. Um, so spoiler a lot is that Ultimately, all the four different approaches gave me the same results. So that was kind of surprising to see, but you know, it was kind of assuring that you know, actually, definition of urban area does not necessarily mean that much in terms of you know finding a certain patterns. But you know, it was really nice to think about what is urban and what is suburban area. So I actually used like those four different approaches. And the first one what, that I was used to was about you know, absolute distance method. That is the name that I made on <laughs> code. Um, was to pick a city center for each metropolitan area and define central areas as those within a certain mile radius from, it, say, one mile, three miles, and ten miles. And conveniently, those city centers were already you know given by the Census Bureau. So, as they Census Bureau staff thought, you know, the city hall or other similar kind of municipal buildings in the largest principal city of each metro as urban city. So it'll be like, you know, city hall of New York or city hall of LA and like mayor's office in Washington, D.C., something like that. 
And that 10 mile you know, radius, 10 mile circle worked pretty well. For example, you know, Interstate 495 in DC is just about that kind of 10 mile radius ring. So every areas within that radius ring, I define them as urban area, rest of those metropolitan area, and university suburban area. So it's pretty simple and very intuitive, but have some issues around the fact that there are super large, you know, huge metros like New York, and there might be really small, tiny metros like Milwaukee. So the second approach, relative distance method, makes a slight adjustment to that by you know, selecting neighborhoods that are closest to city center that holds about you know, 5% of metropolitan area population, or 10%, and then 30%. Yeah. So in, in this way, you might be able to like, compare, say, you know, apple to apple um, between, say, New York and Milwaukee or New York and Cleveland by comparing the area that holds about 30% of New Yorkers and 30% of those people in Milwaukee um, around that kind of city centers. And then third approach is much more convenient using just administrative boundaries of principal cities and selecting those neighborhoods within that kind of cities. Like for example, in DMV area, it'll be Washington, Arlington, and Alexandria. In LA, it'll be LA, city of LA, and the city of Long Beach and Anaheim. So this is what Bill Frey at Brookings prefer to use, and which is pretty convenient. But the map might look a little bit awkward in certain cities, like city of Houston and city of LA, because that have really weird-looking kind of city boundaries. And the last approach uh, was based on people's perception. So in the 2017 AHS American Housing Survey, um, there was a questionnaire about how people describe their neighborhoods as urban, suburban, and rural areas. And then the researchers at HUD and Zillow um, developed a fancy, like sexy um, machine learning model that predicts how you know, out of sample people will describe their town as, say, urban, suburban, and rural and generated a certain index, like urban perceptions, um, small area index. And I really like the idea um, and, and the approach, you know, you adopted that um, index. Um, so, but the downside would be all the like, you know, AI algorithms uh, would be in a black box, so nobody can explain why, how we get this research. In the case of the uh, perception, did, did you find anomalies in that? Did people perceive like Poughkeepsie as urban or did they perceive it as suburban? And what about Manassas? Actually, the map I had was about New York, LA, and Chicago. So you can see those maps in my, my article. Um, and it looked pretty good to me. The areas that I think is much more like urban, meaning that having much more high-rise density, uh, high-rise, high-density um, apartments or office area are defined as urban and some areas that is kind of relatively close to that kind of urban course but does not have any kind of major buildings or you know, serving any kind of major functions are determined as suburban, you know, suburban or rural areas. So it looks pretty good to me. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think it's interesting because um, so then you're testing to see you know, are, you know, the younger generation moving into these areas. And it could be that it's in a, a, a downtown area that's close to the city hall, as you mentioned, or it could be, you know, a little bit further out and, and it's just identified as an urban area. 
um, by people. And, and like you said, in your paper, you kind of create a shading to show where people um, think they're in an urban area. And it seems to make sense. And so you're, you're kind of getting both of those measures captured and you're finding similar results. Is that right? Right. So actually, I was thinking about finding some differences across different measures and try to you know, explain them. But given the fact that I got pretty consistent patterns from very different um, approaches and then very different areas, um, if you see the map, somewhat different. But it seems like most of the kind of patterns are created in maybe some common ground between all of the four different approaches, which is just downtown area, right? Those, you know, administrative approaches or, you know, perception approaches, consistently selecting of those downtown area nearby the city hall or, or the city centers. And I think that's what explains the consistent findings of mine. So largely, um, that was kind of really surprising, but also assuring to me. And I think it's interesting to think about, I think, I'm sure that is a driver of the, you know, the downtown's kind of being consistent and, uh, um, but some of the further out areas that are identified as, uh, as urban kind of have some of the walkability um, that you mentioned earlier. And so people are drawn to those areas as well. And um, as we see development and as we think about where, where people are moving, I think they still like to be um, close to areas that kind of have the live, work, play kind of activities, even if it's not in the central downtown area. Another question that I have um, that I, is um, is just cross generations. So, so I think you you also kind of compare and say like how do millennials and compare to baby boomers and and Gen Xers and other generations across a number of factors. And so you know we may expect them to do similar things at similar stages of life, um, but there's areas where they're the same and there's areas where they're different. Um, and you looked across a few factors. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, so in many times we see some, you know, awkward situation that we compare ourselves with our parents when they are like 40 years old, 50 years old, and then we are like 20 years old. So to avoid that kind of situation, what I really wanted to do was compare different generations when they are at the same age, like boomers when they are 20 years old, Gen Xers when they are 20 years old, like millennials when they are 20 years old. Um, that could be much more like apple to apple comparison rather than apple to orange comparison. So I, I, in doing so, I needed a certain data set that goes back to the years when boomers were 20s, like, you know, 1960s and 1970s. So now American Community Survey is not my answer. So that was the reason why I wanted to use the annual kind of current population survey from 1962 to 2019. So it's annual data set so that I can follow each generation's like trajectory into different um, um, dimensions of you know, their, their social well-being or economic well-being. And I selected six different kind of measures um, related to housing and their, their status. Um, one is headship, like or household formation. And another one was homeownership. The third one was educational attainment and their average personal income and their better status and the share of people in multifamily units. So the two variables that gave me very kind of gradual, one-way kind of long-term trends over time, and that were marital status and educational attainment. 
So in that way, in, in, in for, for these variables, I just use the share of people who are ever married, including those currently married and currently divorced, currently like widowed or mothers. And in terms of the educational attainment, I calculate the share of those people who are having at least you know, better degree or even higher. So for example, many would notice that younger generations are less likely to get married than earlier generations. We know that, right? But what, what struck me was the level of difference. What surprised me was the level of difference. I mean, about 40% of early baby boomers born in 1950 were ever married when they were 20 years old. Like think about two-fifths of those who just finished their high school already got married. That was what was happening in 1970. Today, it is only 7.2% among the late millennials born in, say, 1995. And then that kind of generational rates never converge even when people become 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old. So that basically means that there's a kind of tendency of not only delay in marriage, but also decline in marriage over time. And then, you know, educational attainment has been very consistently improved among those younger generations compared to older generations at the same age, like thanks to improvements among improvements in educational attainment, especially among those, you know, women. Um, those two things are kind of really long-term trends that does not, you know, change that much and very consistent over time. And the two variables that show somewhat kind of dramatic changes um, um, that are kind of average personal income and home ownership. So we often have some image of millennials who have been like struggling in the job market, you know, after the financial crisis of 2007-8. And it was true for, for in terms of their, you know, average personal income when they were like 20 years old and then uh, late 20 years old, that you know their income was the, the millennials' income was lower than Gen Xers, um, but the income had rapidly caught up of the, those older adults when they were like 30, early 30s, and in these days as well. So their income is now greater than any earlier generation. So millennials are on average you know, earning more than Gen Xers, boomers, and others. And why? Because when we consider the fact that you know average personal income is a certain you know, function of you know number of people who are in the job market, and then their average wages, it might be due to the fact that increasing like labor force participation among those women compared to you know earlier years and then older generations, but also due to the improved you know educational attainment and thus maybe higher productivity, which lead to you have higher you know, wages and income. So when you look at sort of uh, the generations that were uh, close together, like the, um, you know, the younger uh, or the older Gen X and, and uh, younger, older millennials <laughs> or, or the crossover generation that you described, like how, how do you see those differences? Like just when it, when they're close together, do you see the, how different is the income? How different is the educational attainment? Right. We often think like Gen Xers, especially those late Gen Xers and early millennials are just alike. And we also, you know, use the term like Geniers <laughs> to having a certain, you know, um, generation for those people. But to me, it seems like um, there are some long-term trends of 
ever-improving educational attainment. And there are some different timing of economic shock, which is, you know, financial crisis that happened to their life, you know. So for Gen Xers, that happened when they were, you know, early 20-somethings and they when they just moving into the labor market. So their income may look a little bit better in 20-somethings. And then 30-somethings, it is kind of a little bit flattened over time. But millennials in here, the only millennials that I picked was those people who were born in 1985. So for them, you know, their 20-something was really bad time. <laughs> their income was way lower than Gen Xers, even Gen Xers. Even just there are only eight-year intervals between, um, no, actually, there's a 12-year interval. So Gen Xers who were born in 1973, and millennials who were born in 1985. So there are some 12-year intervals. So millennials had much lower income in when they were like 26, 27, 28, and they rapidly catching up at around the age of 30. And now age of 32, 33, 34, they have much higher income than any of those generations. That was pretty interesting to me. So it seems like there are some differences across different um, generations, maybe, you know, something that I observed when I was in graduate school was that I, I, I did my master's degree in 2010 and, and graduate um, in 2012. That was right after the financial crisis, right? And I saw many um, of my colleagues who just decided to you know, study a little bit more because of the fact that, you know, job market is so bad. And ultimately, that helped them a lot um, after the graduation in terms of their maybe wage or their productivity, so they could rapidly catch up. Um, whereas those older like Gen Xers, they were already in the job market um, five years, six years, so they might not be able to think about you know going back to the you know school or something like that. So that that may maybe created some of the difference between that that close generations. And it's interesting that. Uh... So, so maybe they made capital investments, which made their future income uh, able to be higher, which is then somewhat being realized, at least in the case of the, the millennials kind of getting ahead right now, which, uh, which is, it's good to hear because I know that the, um, there were concerns at the time, would, would millennials ever catch up? And, uh, and it makes, it raises other questions of how millennials, you know, have been different so that they've been different on income and, and lower and now they've caught up. Um, they've been lower, as you mentioned, in terms of ever married, and uh, and um, and that might be correlated then to another one, which is where they're actually higher than other generations in terms of uh, percent in multifamily likelihood to be in multifamily units. So they may be more likely to be renting in multifamily units. So those are the some of them. They still haven't kind of reverted back to the you know, other generations. And it's, it's interesting to think about whether they'll move back uh, to historical trends in those as well. Yeah, and I think these, many of those millennials are, you know, just following what their you know, parents did and their brothers did, you know, 10 years, 20 years before. So do you remember one of those friends episode that you know Chandler and Monica decided to move from their you know, apartment in Manhattan into the suburbs? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that that happened 10 years and 30 years ago, and they are technically Gen Xers. And now we are simply seeing the same pattern in the 21st century. 
But as you said, there are some, there could be some differences and similarities. Um, the big difference is marital status, right? So there are more single, um, well-educated people who may prefer to stay in those you know, multi-family apartments in the downtown area compared to earlier generations. But on the other hand, there might be some, you know, offsetting kind of factors, which is like higher income and higher educational attainment, which is strong predictor of home ownership and the living in suburban area. So I think ultimately it'll be somewhere between the two. But it is true that the majority of those people are, you know, started to move to suburban areas away from multifamily um, units. As you see in my paper, the share of those people in you know, multifamily apartments are just look like just inverted like U-shaped kind of curve um, in terms of the, the relationship between age and, and, and the, that kind of multifamily share. So for all generations, not only millennials, but also like Gen Xers and Boomers, that multifamily share rapidly increases as people are aged from say 20 to 25, 26, 27, and pick around that kind of mid twenties, and then decline pretty rapidly, meaning that the more and more are moving to say single family homes, probably in you know, suburban area, you know, starting their transition into other two. So yes, millennials are not an exception for that kind of kids. So what is the impact of, of this change then on, you know, with so many people moving to the suburbs, what's the impact on the suburbs and on housing affordability? Yeah, in terms of the housing affordability, I think um, this might not necessarily be good news because, you know, given the housing supply has been so restricted in many recent years, um, and think about who those people um, were in urban areas, they are disproportionately, disproportionately um, non-Hispanic white, high-income, well-educated people. And now they are, they have just started to make their moves to suburban areas. So, and they have very strong housing demand and have lots of the financial resources to um, meet their demands as well. So I feel like um, in terms of the housing affordability, if um, government or other, you know, public agencies does not do any kind of additional efforts, then it may not necessarily um, means uh, good news for many of those suburban areas. Yeah, and I think uh, just as we think about um, the past year, and uh, you know, certainly there's been a, a move to get more space and uh, very low interest rates, and that's you know put people in a position to. Um, to buy um, and to move to suburbs and get more space. And the, the single family housing market has been so incredibly strong um, in the past year. And just in recent quarters, we're seeing that the multifamily market is following as well. And I think it's, you know, the, the, the lack of supply in the, uh, in the housing market overall is kind of starting to hit both markets because there was demand for single family, um, and then, um, and then there continues to be demand for multifamily, and both are going up in prices so so much. And I, I think to, to Corey's question, it, it's really affecting affordability, and um, and there's constraints in the system. And when when we think about you know affordability on on one hand, there might be some um, impact 
on you know millennials. What 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 about um, millennials? Um, when we have some different type of millennials, one millennial have lots of the financial resources, so they might it might be a good for them to find a kind of good place in suburban areas. But when you think about you know a third of those you know recent home buyers have like credit score of like seven hundred fifty. I, I don't know. I, I saw a you know, Wall Street Journal article about that, and then lots of those new, new home buyers had like really excellent credit scores. And when you think about you know those racial minorities and you know and those people who does not have like credit card or does not have lots of you know, financial literacy, does not have that kind of excellent credit score, that basically means that for them, there's a much less access to you know, home ownership, less access to you know, affordable housing, less access to whatever they wanna you know, get, right? So I think there might be some different um, impact of this kind of you know, COVID-19 and um, suburbization of, of you know, millennials on different types of people. So I'm also interested, you know, with um, you know, so the the interest and in, in ability to buy more, are, is there a, a difference? I and mean, there's not a whole lot of starter homes out there, not certainly not being built. What is it, what neighborhoods are people moving into, you know, with the shortage in, in housing? And is that different now than it has been in the past? Yeah, that is a really good question. And that is what I really wanted to answer on from my recent ongoing research project. So um, from you know earlier research project, I found that now millennials are moving to suburban areas and it is a certain type of the metropolitan areas. Now I started to link those you know, demographic characteristics of millennials and then neighborhood characteristics of the, where they you know, moving to. So ultimately this would you know, enable me to answer you know, what kind of people are prefer to move a certain type of the neighborhood. So what kind of people are preferred to move to um, like new urban gym is like walkable, you know, high density, mixed use suburban area versus what kind of people are trying to move to more kind of mediocre, like big mansion-ish, you know, non-Hispanic white suburban areas, something like that. So I don't have now a certain answer for that, but when I find some interesting research, I will let you know. So. Here's some, you know, just stay tuned and just let me have another chance to do this kind of interview when I have those research. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's like the end. It's like the end credit scene of a of a Marvel universe movie. <laughs> Given a hint of what's next. Uh, so what what if I ask you the question in a different way? Then what if what if we were to to think about um, how can planners how can developers or, or localities think about uh, you know addressing the you know, supply challenge with people with more people moving to the suburbs what what does the uh, what does the future of supply look like yeah the thing that I was thinking about was when we talk about um, housing supply we, we tend to think about only like just um, new construction right? Um, how to provide more, say, create new kind of development projects in suburban area to provide, say, mixed income, mixed use kind of um, communities. Um, but uh, when I actually see the data set, it is only three to four percent of movers that are moving into new housing units, newly built housing units. Rest of them, meaning that like 60, 96 or 97 percent of all the movers are moving to somewhat pre-owned, you know, housing units. 
So the key answer for how to provide more rooms for millennials in suburban area might be um, to increase kind of turnovers. And that could be generational turnovers because of the fact that many of those suburban areas are now occupied and owned by boomers, another generational giants, right? Um, and they are now about age of, say, 55, 74, um, so just past their kind of retirement age. And they may start to realize that um, their um, physical and mental ability has changed a little bit. So they may need um, a special um, type of the housing units, but they really want to stay in the same housing units and the same community they've been um, stayed for like 20 years and 30 years. So currently what is happening is competition between boomers and millennials for the same place, same space, which is suburban area. But what I'm, what I'm talking about is why don't we provide um, better housing units or better you know, communities that is kind of age friendly so that those boomers can move to that kind of maybe area that could even meet better their kind of housing demand in terms of the accessibility, visibility, and other things and make some room for millennials in those suburban areas so that those millennial people who just started to migration into suburban areas can move into those you know, rooms. So that was part of the thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of the, how to provide some housing supply. Which we'll certainly look forward to. I know that um, it's, it's great work that you've done to help kind of illustrate like, um, you know, what's going on in the downtowns, what's going on for millennials and, and, you know, how does that go into a historical context and, you know, where do things fall out geographically within a metro? So um, definitely appreciate your being here today, Hyojong, and kind of um, shedding light on all these things. All right. Thank you. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Colla. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research. <laughs>